0: Welcome to Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm your host, Taylor Velazquez. We want to take a moment to acknowledge the shooting that happened at the Chiefs Super Bowl celebration yesterday in Kansas City. And we want to uh, honor the lives that were taken and keep in mind of the lives that were um, injured as we move forward with today's conversation. And gun violence in New Mexico has more than doubled in, 20, in New Mexico since 2014, leaving the state. the third highest in the U.S. when it comes to firearm-related deaths. But it's important to note that not all firearm injuries result in fatalities. And between 2018 through 2022, emergency department visits due to firearm injuries have increased by 35 percent. When it comes to our nation's children, guns are the leading cause for the group with nearly 3,600 gun-related deaths in 2021. New Mexico is also seeing this impact as deaths of children in 2023 led to the governor's contentious public health order to keep guns out of many public places. The state legislature is now following her lead this session with several bills to restrict firearm access, from raising the the age to purchase a gun and increasing waiting periods to even banning some semi-automatic weapons. As today at noon marks the end of the legislative session, we'll take a look at what bills have seen some traction and may even end up on the governor's desk if not headed there already, while other bills have completely stalled out this session. Much of our state has been impacted by gun violence, and this type of violence can take many different forms. Parts of today's discussion may become heavy, and if you or someone you know is considering suicide, call or text the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. This morning, we'll discuss several of the bills, their legality, and how we move forward to address gun violence in our state. With lawmakers, gun rights advocates, and gun violence prevention activists, do you think certain legislation has gone too far this session, or do you think lawmakers are on the right track? You can let us know by emailing us at Let's Talk New Mexico or Let's Talk at KUNM.org or call in at 505-277-5866. And I want to introduce my first guest, Brittany Breyes, the Youth Development Director with New Mexicans to Prevent Gun Violence, and a former legislator. Good morning, Brittany, thanks for joining us. Good morning, Taylor, thank you for having me. And so far this or this morning we're going to be talking about the gun gun violence we're seeing nationally as well as in New Mexico, and it sounds like everyone is struggling, but we've seen some pretty harrowing cases here, like the isotope shooting that led to a child losing their life. But can you tell us what gun violence has looked like in the state this past year uh
1: yes we're we're seeing uh really high numbers, uh, and that's not. That's not just for New Mexico. that's actually across the the country. Um, it's the number one cause of death for for youth uh, across the the whole country, including here here uh, in New Mexico. Um, we do a uh, an eight to ten wo- week uh, workshop in um, I think we're in nine schools now across Albuquerque. and um, one of the, one of the things that we do in that workshop is we we honor uh, lives that have been lost for younger younger uh, people here in New Mexico, and um, we're we're seeing more and more numbers when it comes to to the people that we honor, uh, and so it's really a sad sad situation for our state and our our children.
0: And one of the reasons the governor provided her controversial public health emergency order last year was because of the amount of children who. Are dying by firearms. So, why are so many
1: kids dying by firearms? Well, I think there's a lot of different um, reasons. Um, You know, gun violence is a multifaceted issue, and so it takes a multi pronged approach uh, to to stopping it, or at least trying to uh, to stop it. Um, But there's there's a lot of access uh, to firearms that maybe uh, when I was, was younger or older generations, we didn't, we didn't really have access to firearms the way that our, our youth do now. And we're gonna really get into the
0: legislative session, what has gone on this session since it is ending today at noon, like I mentioned, but can you tell me a little bit more about the legislation that New Mexicans Against Gun Violence has gotten into?
1: Yes, our our two priority bills um, this year were uh, House Bill Twenty Seven, which was making uh, amendments to the uh, Extreme Risk Protection Order, um, that's already in 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 place, uh, and so that that was some amendments. And then um, we also had uh, House Bill One Twenty Nine, which is a waiting period uh, to purchase a firearm, and uh, that that actually uh, uh, passed. We're super. Super proud of New Mexico and and excited to see that um, hopefully get signed by the governor.
0: And I actually want to introduce our next guest, Andrew Willinger, Executive Director of the Duke Center for Firearms Law. Good morning, Andrew. Thanks for joining us this morning.
2: Of course. Thanks for having me on.
0: And I wanna jump into some of the gun legislation we're seeing in New Mexico this session. We'll hear from our representative, Hawkman Hill on several of the bills she's co-sponsored this session later this hour. But for now, I wanna jump ahead and talk a little bit about what Brittany just mentioned, House Bill 129, or what's known as the waiting period bill, which has been extremely contentious in New Mexico. This bill would instate a seven-day waiting period for firearm purchases, and many opponents for the waiting period is they're saying it's effectively a ban on firearms. And from a legal perspective, Andrew, does this bill run ag- up against the Second Amendment?
2: Yeah, so that's it's a really interesting question, um, and I'll say a sort of high-level takeaway is that the legal landscape is very uncertain at the moment, um, in part because of a recent Supreme Court decision in 2022 that changed the legal test for Second Amendment challenges um, and made that test much more history-focused. Um, so we really don't have a great sense yet of how courts will apply that test to things like waiting periods. Um, There is some litigation involving California's waiting period, which I believe is 10 days. Um, That's ongoing at the moment. Um, And in that case, really, the question is going to be whether um, the fact that waiting periods themselves are relatively new, right? They don't emerge in states until about the 1920s, the early uh, 20th century, whether that means under this new test that they are unconstitutional, as the plaintiffs in that California case argue, or or whether there are uh, laws from further back in American history that might have sort of a, a similar purpose as these waiting periods, right, might be similarly designed to allow some sort of cooling off period before somebody can purchase a firearm.
0: This past weekend, our lawmakers went into lengthy debates about this bill, about the pen- potential expectations and the exceptions to the waiting period but one of those that they wanted granted was a fi- family violence protection order some lawmakers said that the waiting period could make people vulnerable and even leave them without a way to protect themselves but that exception was ultimately denied but there's a Supreme Court case from 20 or 2008 that concluded that the second amendment does protect those to carry a weapon in case of confrontation if the governor signs the bill into law which it looks looks like she may. Do you think this could pose a constitutional challenge going forward?
2: Yeah. So you mentioned the 2008 case, which is uh, is called Heller. Um, and, that, and that's right. That's really the first time that the Supreme Court interprets the federal Second Amendment and says that it protects an individual right to keep and carry guns for self-defense. Um, and, you know, I think the question, again, um, after this new decision uh, in 2022 is just going to be how a court determines whether a law like this is consistent with the historical tradition of gun regulation. And we've really seen, I think, a fair amount of confusion in the federal courts about how to apply that test, um, about how you actually analogize to history. Um, Courts are are applying this test and coming out differently, even as to the same types of gun laws at the federal and state level. Um, So there's still a lot of uncertainty. There will actually be uh, another Supreme Court decision uh, later this, this spring or early summer at the end of the term where we might see some clarification on some of the issues that are that are dividing these judges.
0: It seems like when we're talking about gun laws, the debate ultimately comes down to gun control and gun rights. The Second Amendment cites a right to bear arms. But what does that mean exactly?
2: Right. So, as you mentioned, everything kind of changed in this area in 2008. Um, Before that time, as far as the federal Second Amendment was concerned, um, courts had almost universally decided that it protected only a right that was associated in some way with militia service. Um, Again, this goes to the the initial or prefatory clause of the Second Amendment that refers to a well-regulated militia. Um, In the Heller case, the Supreme Court adopted what's often called the private purposes or individual rights view, which says that the amendment is not limited to covering just people and activities and arms that relate to an organized militia, but also encompasses a private right um, to keep firearms in the home for self-defense. That's what the court said in Heller. And then in subsequent cases, the court has said there is also a right to carry guns in public in certain contexts for personal self-defense.
0: And gun violence is ever increasing. We've seen so much coverage about mass shootings, road rage incidents that are leading in deaths. And Gallup recently did a survey that shows 56% of Americans say gun laws should be stricter. But Andrew, is there a fine line between strengthening gun laws while respecting the rights of responsible gun, gun owners?
2: Absolutely. Um, that's that's really the you know the difficult policy question in this area. Um, and I, I will say that one one thing that always strikes me is that when you ask. When you ask sort of general questions about, you know, do you support stricter gun laws? Those types of polling questions, you see very wide gulf in terms of um, partisan views, right? Democrats versus Republicans. I think the gap is now maybe 50 or more percentage points in in those type of of high-level questions about gun rights and regulation. Uh, On the other hand, uh, when you drill down and start talking about certain kinds of specific regulatory proposals things like um, red flag laws, for example, or regulations that are targeted to the intersection of guns and domestic violence, um, you actually start to see a lot more agreement. Um, and in some cases, you see um, a majority of of gun owners supporting those types of laws, even as high as, as 70 or 80 percent.
0: And it seems like a lot of the conversation this morning is going to be concerning what rights the state has to take Some of the initiatives that they're proposing, but we have a a bill going through the legislature right now that would raise the age to buy a firearm from 18 to 21. Other states have been grappling with the same type of legislation as well, but is this something the state has the right to do?
2: Yeah, so this is actually a really interesting area um, in the wake of this uh, 2022 Supreme Court decision in a case called Bruin, which set forth uh, the history-focused test that I mentioned earlier. Um, Because when you think about age restrictions on this 18 to 20-year-old group, um, you sort of have historical evidence that points both ways. So on one hand, you have um, militia uh, laws and requirements around the time of the American founding that often said that 18 to 20 year olds were required to serve in the militia um, and obviously bring firearms with them to militia drills and so on. Um, and now that doesn't necessarily, I think, imply that there was a private right to have a gun for self-defense, but it could be, it could be circumstantial evidence of some kind of uh, right at the time among that age group. On the other hand, you have states in the 1800s that start to regulate um, firearm ownership and carrying among this group, um, uh, among young adults. Um, and so the question for courts is, is, how do you weigh those two things? Um, and I'll say that, you know. Know, it, it's a very uncertain area. We've seen decisions going both ways on these age restrictions. Some courts striking them down, saying that they violate the Second Amendment. Other courts saying that there is a historical tradition of restricting gun access uh, among young adults. And so I think, it's a, I think it's a question that, you know, we'll see, may, maybe we'll, we will get some clarity on in the coming years, but right now there, there are a lot of cases uh, going through the court system with um, divergent results.
0: And this is Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM. I'm Taylor Velazquez. We're talking about gun violence and several of the bills that were introduced this legislative session. We're gonna take a quick break and we'll, we'll be back in a moment.
2: It's time to elect four people to the KUNM radio board, and you're invited to nominate yourself. We welcome people from all walks of life, and a broad array of points of view are encouraged. Nominations must be in by 5 p.m. February 15th, emailed to kunmelect at unm.edu, or mailed to University Secretary, Scholes Hall, UNM 87131. Nominations may not be hand delivered. For complete info on the KUNM Radio Board elections, call 505-277-4664 or visit KUNM.org in the About tab.
3: KUNM's mission is to create a more informed public, one that is challenged and invigorated by a deeper understanding and appreciation of events, ideas, and cultures. This critical work is all made possible by contributing members. Thank you for your support.
2: Have you ever had a friend convince you to do something difficult when they promise the effort will be worth it? Pianist Gilles Fonsadel says he had that experience learning this difficult and rarely played piece. We'll find out if it was worth the effort on the next Performance Today from APM. Weekday mornings at 9 on KUNM.
0: Welcome back to Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm Taylor Velazquez. Next week, we'll discuss aging and long-term care. Today, however, we're talking about the efforts to mitigate gun violence in our state. What other resources should lawmakers be considering to help our communities end gun violence? Or are you a gun owner? What suggestions do you have to encourage both responsible gun ownership while also mitigating that gun violence? Um, you can let us know by calling us at 505-277-5866, or you can let us know by shooting us an email at talk at And I want to go back to our guest, Andrew Willinger, from the Duke Center for Firearms Law. And I know we have you for only a couple more minutes this morning, but can you just give us some final thoughts on what we should be considering going forward in this conversation about mitigating gun uh, violence while also making sure we're sticking to the Constitution as well?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, just as a couple of sort of closing thoughts, I I mean, first, what we've seen over the past few years at the state level um, is that we've sort of seen, as I think you might expect, um, states where you have um, Democratic majorities in the state legislature and a Democratic governor have enacted various types of gun regulation. We've seen um, increasing number of states passing red flag laws, which I know New Mexico already has in place. Um, We've seen states passing Locational restrictions on gun carrying, safe storage laws, and so on. Um, and on the other side, we've seen deregulation um, in in red states and states that have Republican majorities in the state legislature, um, specifically permitless carry, which has now been adopted by 27 states. Um, and so, I think we're we're getting to a place where we've sort of we're sort of having a a um, you know, something of a stasis where you have these, these, these regulatory, these regulatory moves, deregulatory moves, and we're kind of getting to a point where I think the next, the next thing to keep an eye on is going to be the courts and how they, um, how they actually apply this history-focused test that the Supreme Court has set forth, um, whether whether there's additional guidance on how to apply that test um, and how some of these legal challenges play out over the coming years.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Andrew, for coming on the show this morning. We appreciate your time. But I'm gonna actually pivot to our next guest this morning, um, Democratic Representative Deanne V. Hill, who represents Bernalillo County. As the session is ending today at noon, the representative couldn't join us live, but we spoke earlier in the week about several of the bills she's sponsoring. And our interview happened before the bill, cre- uh, the bill creating a waiting period was passed and sent over to the governor's desk. I asked the Representative Hockman-Vihill why she introduced this bill and what it would look like. One of the goals for passing this legislation
4: was to close what's known as Charleston loophole in federal background check law, which basically states once a firearm is sold and a federal background check is initiated in instances where a background check is required and that background check is not completed in three days, The buyer of that firearm can just keep it essentially rendering the entire purpose of the background check null and void. So, one of the reasons we needed to pass HB 129 in any form was to close that specific loophole. And the seven day waiting period does just that. And it also creates the requirement that a firearm cannot be exchanged or in the put in the possession of the buyer during that seven-day period in which we're waiting for the background check to be completed. The purpose of this bill was to create time and space between the contemplation of a firearm purchase for whatever reason and the purchase of that firearm.
0: You're also co-sponsoring another piece of legislation, House Bill 198, to restrict access to guns for some convicted criminals. Is there opposition to that or is it a bipartisan position?
4: It depends on who you ask, and just with everything else up here, the devil is in the details, but I think generally most lawmakers are in favor of keeping firearms out of the hands of known felons, people who have been put on notice that they it is legal for them to possess a firearm, and if they continue to do so, or worse, they uh, complete a crime with a deadly weapon or a firearm, there needs to be accountability for that.
0: You're also co-sponsoring House Bill 127 that would increase the legal age to buy a firearm to 21. What impact are you hoping to see if this bill goes through and is signed by the governor?
4: So we passed a bill a couple of years ago and it was essentially removing life in prison without the possibility of parole for minors. And the same impetus for that bill applies to 127, which is we want to make sure that those people who are making the decision to purchase or keep a firearm are mature enough to do so. We know that in some instances, in most humans, their frontal lobe of their brain, which is the area of the brain responsible for making rational decisions, is not fully developed. And so, you know, the same reason why we don't allow children to drive cars, we want to protect society by increasing the age of those people who are contemplating the purchase of a gun. It's a big decision.
0: Mitigating gun violence is a priority for the governor. We saw her public health emergency order last year gain a lot of attention, but not a lot of support. You're co-sponsoring a bill for the Office of Gun Violence Prevention. What would this office exactly look like?
4: This office would be charged with the study of data that would be collected from various sources throughout the state to help us pinpoint and narrow down the reasons for gun violence, where we see it, why we see it. I would also be a repository of information and data surrounding gun violence. And most importantly, that would also arm the legislature with data to be able to decipher whether or not these policy positions we're taking and laws that we're passing are successful. For instance, the ERPO bill, Extreme Risk Protection Act, we made modifications to it this year. I think it's been in law since 2021, I want to say. And the Office of Gun Violence would allow the state to collect data and information as to whether or not ERPO works. And so it's a tool. It's not politicized. It's not Democrats trying to take control of the gun debate or or take control of the information. It's actually for everybody to see the data and based on facts and science and help us make decisions as to how we're going to
0: respond to that data. Gun legislation always involves contentious debate, but our communities are still seeing a lot of gun violence. What do you make of some of these gun bills stalling out this session?
4: I think gun bills are hard. I think that when you're talking about constitutional right, as we see in the Second Amendment, gun bills and passing legislation on this subject is really hard. And you know what? It should be hard because constitutional rights should be highly regarded. There's a lot of litigation that's currently going on that's helping us to shape the scope of what the constitutional right to bear arms is and what it's supposed to look like. And so I think that that has a lot to do with it. We have to be extremely careful and make sure that the laws that we pass are effective and data and fact-based. We know for a fact that the waiting period created by HB 129 works. It's been implemented in other states and we know that uh, those states that have both mandated federal background checks and mandated waiting period have seen significant decline in suicides. And so this is a perfect example of one of those bills where we have the data and we know that it works. I want to take a moment to just wish that we could at some point depoliticize this issue and have a a fact-based, sane conversation on what gun violence has done to our communities, what gun legislation should look like, why and how it affects our communities, and why it's important for us to have
0: that was Rep- representative day in Hawkman speaking with me earlier this week and we also wanna hear from you all listening. What do you make of the bills going through the roundhouse this session? Have some gone too far? Or are they still not doing enough? Give us a call at 505-277-5866 or email us at org to share your thoughts. And I wanna go back to our in-studio guest, Brittany Boreas from the New Mexicans to Prevent Gun Violence. Um, we heard from Representative Hockman Vihill on the legislation she's sponsoring and the waiting period Bill that's going to go through in other states like Colorado and Illinois, they have that waiting period. What has happened in other states, and has this type of legislation proven to save lives?
1: Uh, it's definitely proven to save lives, um, especially when it comes to like a suicide prevention. Um, many people will go out and purchase a firearm uh, just with the intent to to take their own life. Um, that waiting period, uh, you know. Seven days is is a long time uh, to change to change your your mind about doing something like that. Also, uh, violent acts of, uh, of passion, so like domestic violence, or um, you know, just if you're in a fight with somebody, uh, you can't just go out and, and purchase a firearm just to harm that person. Um, I'll also uh, you know just say that we're we're really proud of the the leadership from. Um, representative Andrea Romero Senator Cervantes um, and also um, representatives uh, uh, Day Hawkman V Hill um, you know we we were we've been working uh, really closely with them uh, for years I know that with Senator Cervantes on this bill uh, we know that it's going to pass um, you know anything anybody questioning uh, constitutional um, worries uh, and we're, we're really impressed uh, with the, the bill and the way that it, it passed. We took it from a 14-day uh, to a 7-day waiting period. And um, we think that this will really not just make everybody happy on both sides of the aisle, but also um, keep our, our state uh, safer.
0: And I want to introduce our next guest this morning, Zach Ford, the Legislative Affairs Officer with the New Mexico Shooting Sports Association. Good morning, Zach. Thanks for joining us.
3: Good morning. Thanks for having me on.
0: And I want to get your reaction before we dig a little deeper into your organization's stances on certain pieces of legislation. Do you think that the seven-day waiting period could save lives?
3: So I think, you know, if you if you look through some of the research, you know, there was kind of a rebuttal study done against uh, one of the primary um, pieces of research on waiting periods that came out of the, the rebuttal study coming out of Florida State University, I believe. And it did call into question some of the me- methodology and kind of the lack of a robust panel of control variables on, you know, how effective it was in that study. I mean, I certainly understand the theory behind it. Uh, don't get me wrong on that. But I think what what Some of the concern that my organization has is that, you know, in New Mexico, we're a very rural state. And, yes, for someone in somewhere like Albuquerque, uh, you probably live within a couple miles of a gun store. So, you know, having to wait seven days uh is really probably not going to be a terribly large inconvenience for someone in Albuquerque, but at the same time for someone living in a more rural part of the state, you know, having to, you know, if they're already having to make, you know, a three to six hour round trip to be able to go to the gun store, that you are putting impediments in in front of someone's ability to exercise their right to do something. So I think that's where a lot of our concern comes from, is that making sure all New Mexicans have the same access uh, to their civil rights um, as someone living in Albuquerque. You know, someone living in Tyrone or Ocate, New Mexico, where we have members, they make sure they have the same access to their rights as somebody in Albuquerque. So that's kind of where a lot of our concern comes from. You know, I think um, we're, like I said, there were some questions on some of the studies about, you know, how effective they may or may not be, but we can certainly understand the theory behind it. Uh, We did appreciate that they exempted concealed carry permit holders. You know, if you have a concealed carry permit, you know, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that you already own a firearm. But um, I think you're, I would imagine the large majority of concealed carry Permit holders already own a firearm, so there is a way uh, for some New Mexicans, I guess, to bypass that seven-day waiting period uh, if they already have a valid New Mexico concealed carry permit.
0: And we actually have a listener email from Leah. The she says the a massive surge in personal, unregulated recreational gun usage is clearly very dangerous, and it isn't a proper interpretation of the gun rights the Second Amendment intended, as far as she can see. Um, Zach, what do you make of Leah's point?
3: Um, in terms of the number of, in terms of number of firearms?
0: I think she's um, um, getting to the point that we're seeing a lot of gun violence. A lot of people are affected by this gun violence. And she's not too sure if the Second Amendment is interpreting current gun rights or cur- current gun rights debates.
3: Um, well, I think, you know, there's, there's a whole lot to unpack there uh, with that statement. I mean, because, yes, uh, you know, we are not naive to the fact that people are killed with firearms. But I think the point that we like to make is that, you know, um, in terms of, you know, firearms per capita, in this country we really haven't seen you know, any meaningful change one way or the other in terms of firearms per capita so there, even though we have more firearms today than we had historically we also have more people today than we had historically so in really in terms of firearms per capita there really hasn't been a big change in terms of the type of firearms available to people I mean semi-automatic rifles have been available to sale for the American general public with Detachable Magazine since the early 1900s they are 15 specifically went on sale to the general public in the 1960s they're once there once was a time in this country when you could buy an AR-15 with no background check. And yet we didn't seem to have the problems we have today, even though, you know, firearms were very accessible. You know, you had firearm training in schools, uh, all that sort of, th- all that sort of stuff. So we don't really view it in terms of an ex- access to firearm problem, but a greater societal problem. And then when we focus on this myopic focus on firearms, we're missing the bigger picture of what's going on in our society with care for one another, respect for one another, access to health care, things like that. And we're, we're kind of avoiding the bigger questions here, uh, because it's kind of turned into a very political debate over just um, about firearms. So that's kind of, there's a whole, like I said, there's a whole lot to unpack there. But in terms of, you know, firearms per capita type of firearms, access to firearms really hasn't been any change other than it's actually harder to access a firearm now than it was in the 1960s when the AR-15 firearms like that went to sale to the general public. So that's kind of my response there, is that we really actually haven't not as much has changed with term, with regards to firearms. I think sometimes people think that there is. Um, so I think there's other societal changes that we're missing because we're so focused on firearms.
0: And Brittany, you're in the studio here taking a lot of notes. Um, what's your response to our listener,
1: Leah? Uh, yeah, I, I definitely um, I appreciate it. Um, and I appreciate uh, everybody's uh, opinion on this. Um, we we have seen a big change uh, as far as um, firearm violence uh, against each other and and suicides, um, it's sky high right now. Um, and as far as access goes, it's you know it's definitely not harder to, to purchase a firearm um, than it used to be. Uh, we I, I work with with our youth every day in the classroom, um, and I know that there are there are social media apps um, where our youth can. Um, purchase and have in their possession a firearm in 20 minutes. Um, so uh, the way that, that technology is, is changing, um, we definitely see a much, much um, greater access to firearms, uh, for, especially for our youth, than ever before.
0: And I think you both make great points that things have changed so drastically and so quickly. And, you know, some of the debate we heard from Republican lawmakers during the hearings for HB 129, that this punishes responsible gun owners and is effectively a firearm ban. But the sale of a gun would still be completed within 20 days, regardless of that background check being completed. So, Zach, do you agree with um, the lawmakers' stance at it's punishing responsible gun owners, and it's effectively a ban.
3: So I I agree with uh, the statement that, you know, it is making it harder for someone who is a peaceful, law-abiding citizen uh, to get a firearm. You know, ultimately, um, I think, you know, to the point that Senator Cervantes uh, brought up, is that it's not ultimately a ban on gun ownership, because you are ultimately able to bring that firearm home with you. So I think it's a little uh, hyperbole to say that it's a ban on firearms, but it certainly it creates an impediment. And I think what, um, you know, the case law around waiting period, um, because there's not really a whole lot of historical precedent uh, for waiting periods, so I think there's probably there are some open questions. I you know there's a lot of ongoing litigation. Uh, for instance, the bill, the law in Colorado is currently being litigated. I think they're waiting on the Tenth Circuit to pick that one up. Um, so it is it is an impediment because it effectively turns someone into a prohibited possessor for a certain period of time until that time until until that arbitrary period of time has passed. Um, so that's like I said, it's not really a ban on firearms because you are ultimately able to receive receive your firearm. Uh, But it it is an impediment um, that is largely going to impact uh, people who just want to peacefully exercise their rights.
0: And we're actually going to head over to a quick break. This is Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM. We're talking about several proposed pieces of legislation that could limit or restrict access to firearms. I'm Taylor Velazquez. We'll be back in a minute.
3: Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists.
2: Hello, I'm Oren J. Sofer, author of Your Heart Was Made For This. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about our capacity to respond effectively to today's complex world.
1: Saturday mornings at 6 on KUNM. We may not admit it, but many of us develop a real bond with our cars. Some may even call it
2: love. But many years and many miles can bring them to a point where they just won't run anymore. Well, there's a way to honor your beloved car or truck one last time by turning it over to your other love, KUNM. We'll tow it away gently, sell it, and turn the proceeds into a great radio. So go ahead, call 888-KUNM-CAR. That's 888-586-6227.
0: Welcome back to Let's Talk New Mexico on KUNM. We're discussing gun violence. Do you think limiting access to firearms will help gun violence? There's still some time to call in this morning at 505-277-5866. And I want to return to our guest, Zach Ford. Um, we are talking about all the bills that are going through the legislature this session and your organization is actually opposing House Bill 114 which is the Firearm Industry Accountability Act that would hold gun manu- manufacturers accountable if they don't take precautions against letting guns get into the wrong hands can you explain some of that opposition
3: yes so um, that is a good question so we are we str- strongly oppose House Bill 114 um, what i want to d- what I, re- I want to remind people about is there already a whole there's already a ton of regulations from the federal government uh, that surround people who are in the business of selling firearms there's a license that you have to do to to get from the federal government to be in the business of selling firearms it's called the federal federal firearms license and there are already a lot of regulations and if you break any of those regulations not only can you face civil penalties already you can actually go to jail Um, in fact we have seen you know ffls in new mexico in the past when they uh, break laws go to jail what we were concerned about about is the very, very broad language that puts specific liability on the firearm industry that other industries uh, don't face around, you know, creating uh, kind of a vague public nuisance um, sort of thing. So that's that was our concern: is that it just it opened up what could be a lot of lawsuits against the firearm industry uh, for people who were actually following, you know, the, who were following the law. State law, federal law, and who were trying to be reasonable about it because it just created such broad liability for firearms dealers. Um, because by all means, if a if a firearms licensee is selling something that is illegal, uh, contact the ATF and put that person in jail. There's already mechanisms to do things if people are breaking the law. Uh, so that's really our position on it: is that it was uh, it was unnecessary, and that there's already so many regulations federally that surround uh, the what you ha- what you have to do as a federal firearms licensee um and we didn't view it as necess- it as necessary it was really going to do anything because other than potentially you know target an industry that has constitutional protections. So that was our position on the bill. Um like I said if you if you're any of your listeners are listening to this and you know you're thinking uh if there's a firearms licensee that's doing something illegal by all means, you know the ATF has a tip line, uh please notify them.
0: And it sounds like a lot of what this debate is coming down to is responsibility, who's responsible for the violence that can occur and what responsibility do you think the gun industry should bear in preventing gun violence, if any?
3: So I think we all have a responsibility. Um, I think we have a responsibility to be good community members to one another. I think we do have there's, we, there. There's a clear responsibility that you know the firearms industry has under federal law to make sure they're taking precautions that such a things aren't falling into the wrong hands. If a federal, if they, if they're knowingly selling. Th- to somebody who cannot purchase a firearm that is a crime they can go to jail for it if they're facilitating straw purchases that is a crime they can go to jail for it uh, so there's already there's already a duty of care that exists in the firearm industry to make sure that they're following the law in terms of firearm access that you genuinely believe that the person you're selling the firearm to um can legally purchase that gun so there's already a duty of care that exists to make sure um and i think we all share, uh, all gun owners, I think we all share a duty of care um, to protect our firearms from those who would necessarily want to do wrong with them. Uh, But I don't know if What we're we're kind of opposed to here is putting a lot of heavy regulations um, on people who could potentially, who are trying to do the right thing um, on that. So, like I said, we we all have a duty of care as firearm owners and as members of society to do this. We we just don't believe that, you know, creating additional laws when there's already pretty stringent laws, especially around the firearms industry itself, um, is going to necessarily solve that problem.
0: And, Brittany, I also want to follow up with you. What is your organization's stance on HB 114? Do you agree with certain lawmakers that manufacturers need to be held
1: responsible? Well, that wasn't uh, one of our priority bills. Um, And so we – I think that that on on this uh, topic, I would would, uh, agree on a lot of the things that that Zach Fort just said, actually. um, We all have a responsibility, and I don't think that is just – Manufacturers, sellers, um, gun owners. Um, I'm I'm not a gun gun owner, for instance, um, but I still think that I have a responsibility uh, to protect uh, my children and uh, you know my community. Uh, so I think that everybody has a responsibility here, and I think that it's a really tough fine line um, for a corporation. Uh, you know, it's 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 interesting to try to. You know, not stop somebody from making money in an industry where they're already able to make that money uh, and also keep our, our community safer. Um, but it's a collective. It, it's everybody's responsibility. And we actually have
0: a caller on the line, Bill from Las Lunas. Good morning, Bill. Thanks for calling in. Hello. And what was your comment for our guest this morning?
5: Yes, um, I'm surprised you didn't start with the New Mexico State Constitution, Article 2. Um, I'm a gun owner because the constitution, both constitutions give me the right to have freedom of choice. Uh, I became a militia as soon as I bought my first weapon. Uh, being a militia, anytime any person has a weapon, it's part of the militia, just like, uh. Freedom of the press. Anybody that has a phone with a camera now is part of the freedom of press. You can film anything you want when you're in public. So that's freedom of the press, just like freedom of militia. Uh, Also, uh, the Constitution, the state Constitution verifies that uh, Section 6 verifies that Concealed weapons are illegal in New Mexico. Only uh, open carry is what's legal. Uh, Concealed weapons gives gives the terrorist or the gun killer or whatever the opportunity to hide his weapon until he pulls it out and surprises you with terror thank you very much have enjoy your day
0: thanks for calling in bill and zach i want to get your reactions on what our caller bill had just said
5: um you know i
3: appreciate some of his perspective i do want to say you know you can You can legally conceal carry a weapon in New Mexico if you have a concealed carry permit. Um, If you do want to conceal carry a weapon, you do need that permit. You know, you can go to the Department of Public Safety website to learn more about that process. So there is a way to do it. You know, if you are concealed carrying a firearm without a permit, um, then what you would be describing would be illegal. But there is a way uh, to become a concealed carry permit holder. Um, And like I said, around some of the bills uh, that have passed this legislative session, um, House Bill 129 and Senate Bill 5, both of them actually have exemptions for concealed carry permit holders. So if you're more interested, if you're interested to learning about more about that, I would encourage people to go to the Department of Public Safety website.
0: And I actually wanted to pivot to another listener who wrote into us a few weeks ago expressing his concern about the current bill proposals hurting his own small gun shop, expressing that waiting periods could hurt his business. Uh, Zach, do you think this could potentially trickle down to our small business owners?
3: Absolutely. So, um, so to come into a little bit of nuance of firearms law, you actually can purchase a firearm in a state that you don't live in, but it has to be a long gun, i.e. a rifle or a shotgun. You're not supposed to purchase a handgun in a state you don't live in. Uh, so what you can do is you can actually go – so for instance, somebody in New Mexico could go to Arizona or Texas states that have you know pretty permissive, uh, pervasive uh, firearms laws, and they could actually purchase a long gun there as opposed to doing it in New Mexico. And conversely, someone uh, from Texas or Arizona coming into New Mexico, they would actually be subject to the weight as well, I believe, based on the debate we heard on the bill. So I think you actually are going to see firearm purchases diverted away from guns... From gun stores in New Mexico to store to stores in other states, because there are ways like I said, there are ways to legally purchase a firearm in another state that would not be subject to that waiting period. You know, we can't enforce our laws across state lines. Um, I know there's probably going to be some more case law from the Supreme Court, given how many, given the very highly politicized nature, a lot of these big hot topic issues are, and how states are going very divergent paths on this. But effectively, what we know right now is you really can't enforce laws across state lines. So someone from New Mexico could go into Texas. Um, and purchase a firearm at a gun store there as opposed to doing it from a store in New Mexico.
0: As I mentioned before, Representative hockman Hill, who co-sponsored HB 129, couldn't join us live today, but I also asked her about our listeners', listeners concerns, and this is what her response was.
4: I think that if a buyer is intent on buying a firearm, they're going to do so. And we applaud those who go to licensed firearm dealers who are the best equipped for the, the sale of a firearm. The creation of a waiting period is really nothing other than what other stores would have to experience if they allow expensive items to be put away on layaway. If a smaller store has a space issue, they can you know, rent a, a small place where they can store guns. And again, we're just talking about seven days. We're not asking, it's not like asking a car dealership to hold on to a car for a year. This is a one week period up to 20 days, and in most cases and instances, the federal firearm background check will be completed within that time. That's why we chose the seven-day time frame.
0: And Zach, a lot of the bills that we're seeing are stemming from the governor's gun control reform plans that she made a priority this session. A lot of the debate comes around punishing responsible gun owners while trying to mitigate that gun violence. But in your opinion, how do we balance both gun ownership rights and addressing violence?
3: so i think the way the way we look at this stuff is before someone ever uses a firearm in the commission of a crime or against themselves in, in a suicide attempt a whole lot of things have gone wrong before they ever reach that point and our what we've always strongly believed is we need to focus on all the things that go wrong before they ever reach that point um and and yes at the end point that people do use a firearm um and I think there's ways we can reduce access, illegal access to firearms. So, you know, your guest in studio brought up an excellent point about, you know, people use groups on Snapchat or Telegram, using those groups to purchase firearms. What I want to remind people is doing so is highly illegal. There's no legitimate dealer that's selling guns through Snapchat, that then you can just, you know, hand over some cash and pick up the gun. Like that is highly illegal. And that's how, you know, these people a lot of, especially younger people who are engaging in acts of violence are, are receiving their firearms. So I think there's definitely, you know, some opportunity there to, you know, try to do what we can to reduce that type of access, because we wholeheartedly believe, you know, that we need to reduce that type of access, because that is blatantly illegal activity to for when the people who are engaging in that. Uh, so I think there is some area there that, yes, we need to go after the people who are offering illegal firearms to, for sale to people. Um, you know, by all means, if someone is selling stolen firearms or straw purchase firearms to somebody else, go after them because they're that is blatantly illegal to do. It's already, it's illegal under, under a current If we need to stiffen penalties or something like that, we can explore that. Uh, but I think, you know, there's some common ground there in going after people who are facilitating illegal access to firearms. And then also, you know, focusing on uh, what we can do to help people such that, because we do have serious problems with mental health in our state. We have serious problems with access to health care in our state. We have serious problems with cycles of poverty and abuse in our state. And I think that's where it's going to make the biggest difference in, re- in reducing and violence is tackled. Those
0: issues. And Brittany, what do you think about Zach's point that we do have other factors that are contributing to gun violence? Do you think we should be putting more resources into solving issues like mental health and poverty while also trying to get
1: this gun violence out of our communities? Most definitely, um, as I stated earlier, uh, something that um, our co-founder Miranda Viscoli says a lot, uh, and I've kind of adopted the uh, the term. But uh, gun violence is a multifaceted problem, and it takes a multi pronged approach uh, for us to change it. Uh, I agree with with a lot of the things that Zach just just mentioned, um, and I, I I totally agree that um, you know as as technology advances at such like a high rate, um, we now know about things like algorithms. Uh, you know, if you look at, you, you look at an ad um, on your phone and then all of a sudden you're getting those pop-ups on your social media uh, because it knows that that's what you're interested in buying. Uh, we can do the exact same thing for things like firearms uh, where if somebody has firearms on their, let's say, Telegram app, um, then the algorithm can actually uh, uh, you know, red flag that and, and we would know um, that that's what that person is doing. Uh, I think that that's something that as uh, technology, like I said, is advancing so quickly, um, that's something that we should definitely explore because um, it's, a, it's a really, really high rate. Um, and, and Zach's right, it, it is highly illegal, um, but it's happening all the time. Uh, every day, so um, we'll definitely we'll definitely be interested in in uh, exploring that. And Zach, you know, like you guys just made
0: basically the same point, which is very important. How do we balance gun violence legislation, but also other va- uh, legislation like mental health legislation? So, how would you like lawmakers going forward to address that balance? What re- legislation would you like to see?
3: Um, you know. I think that there's definitely some areas uh, that right now where the, the state's been very fortunate that we're ha- in this era of very large budget surpluses. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of different projects um, around the state. There are good projects worth funding, but I don't know if we're actually seeing what I would consider really kind of adequate uh, projects for like mental health facilities and things like that. When you have those capital dollars available uh, to, you know, go build these mental health facilities that we so desperately need, I mean, I think it's pretty blatant, you know, just in- any larger community in New Mexico, um, you know, how much we need these different mental health resources uh, from the funding from the state, because that's something I strongly believe that we need. Um, That I don't know if we that from my perspective I don't know if we got enough of that um, from the state legislature despite this very large budget surplus that we're sitting on right now, Um, and also in terms of access to healthcare I think you know there's that's obviously a very complex issue and I'm not necessarily an expert on that but you know you do see study after study how New Mexicans um, really lag way behind the rest of the country in terms of access to healthcare Uh, so it's just about you know being able to help empower our communities you know we need greater access to health care i think that is something that's really not talked enough about in the state legislature really wasn't discussed too much um and i'm not the expert on that but it's pretty blatantly obvious that we need great much greater access to health care resources um both health care and mental health care in this state
0: and like i said before there's so much gun legislation going through the session and we didn't get to some of the bills this morning, but I, Zach, I want to ask you, we saw those bills introduced this session and they've either stalled out or been very close on those votes. What does this mean for you when it comes to New Mexico, New Mexican standpoint on guns?
3: So. Um, I mean, I think as most of your listeners are probably well aware, there's very large Democrat majorities um, in both houses, this House and the Senate, um, in the state legislature. So when we see these bills kind of getting stalled out, or, you know, when they do pass, they often pass very close. So I think a lot of the votes on some of these bills were very close. You know, some of them got through. I think, you know, the House Bill 129 was like 37-33. Uh, House Senate Bill 5, it was 35-34. Um, so... What I, we what I kind of make of it is, you know, there's a lot of communities across New Mexico uh, in our Hispanic and Native American communities that have very long traditions of firearm ownership in those communities. And there's a lot of people who are Democrats, but who... Really, um, you know, enjoy their second amendment right to own a firearm. So that's kind of what's um, driving a lot of that. Is that despite you know the very large Democrat majority, you know, the nas- the Democratic Party nationally, um, you know, has a very strong stance on gun control. Uh, but at the same time, that doesn't necessarily translate to you know, Española or somewhere or somewhere like that, where you know those people they are registered Democrats, but they have a lot of people up there. You know, have a different perspective on it because they have these traditions of firearm ownership go back a very long time. I mean, you know, all of these communities have existed before the United States is even a country. Um, so I think that's what you kind of run into in the legislature is, yes, the Democratic Party nationally has this agenda on guns, but at the same time, that doesn't necessarily translate to a rural community, uh, to a rural historic community in New Mexico and how they feel about this issue.
0: And Brittany, I wanna get your final thoughts. We're closing up on the hour here, but what do you make of the conversation we had this morning and where should we be going next?
1: Um, yeah, so uh, I think that that, as you can see, uh, with with different opinions, um, we all kind of agree on the same things. Uh, we want to make sure that, that everybody still has their, their you know, constitutional rights and at the same time that we're keeping each other safe. And that's what we're doing. We don't want to pass legislation just to pass legislation. We want to make sure that it's good for, for everybody across New Mexico, including our rural communities. So we'll continue to, to, to do that, to advocate and fight and um, try to do better. And that's all the time we have for today. Thanks to everyone who
0: called and emailed to share your thoughts and thank you so much to our guests Brittany Breaus, Representative Dayan Hawkman V Hill, Zach Ford, and Andrew Willinger. Um, if you missed part of the show this morning, stream it online on our website or subscribe to our podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Our engineer this morning is Marino Spencer. Mia Casas screened your calls. Megan Camrick and Cave Movahead produced the show today. And next week we'll be discussing aging and long-term care. I'm Taylor Velasquez. This is Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM.